Uh, I'm a minister in the Presbyterian Church in America. I work with all of our mission efforts in the U.S. and Canada. My wife, Fran, and I have newly uh, moved to Athens, and we love it here. Happy New Year to you. I want to tell you about a New Year's Day story. It is New Year's Day 1900, and if you can believe it or not, the hot ticket on New Year's Day 1900 was not a seat at the Rose Bowl. Uh, It was a seat in London at the Royal Academy of Sciences. There, Lord Kelvin was speaking, the most famous physicist in the world, really, of his time. And Kelvin speaks to the Royal Academy on New Year's Day 1900, and he stands up and says, uh, distinguished members of the Academy, ladies and gentlemen, I have an announcement for you. There is nothing new for us to learn in the realm of physics. There are no new discoveries to be made. All there is for us is more and more precise measurement. Well, fitting that he should have an obscure temperature scale named after him, Kelvin scale. Uh, Five years later, a funny-looking little man who has giant hair, can't seem to comb it, also can't seem to get into a graduate program anywhere in all of Europe. This funny little man, the only thing he can do is get a job working in the patent office in Bern, Switzerland, across from the railroad station. As he watches trains pass back and forth each day, he thinks on things. In his spare time before, between checking patents, he has these papers stuffed in his desk. And in 1905, this funny little man writes five papers, one talking about the movement of subatomic particles before the subatomic world had even been proven. Now, the second paper proved the existence of the atomic world. The third paper said that light is both particle and wave. The fourth paper has that odd little formula, E equals MC squared. And the fifth says that actually space and time are connected, the special theory of relativity that space and time bend in on each other and affect each other. Of course, that funny little man is Albert Einstein who exploded Kelvin's idea on New Year's Day five years earlier that there is nothing left to be learned in the realms of physics. I think sometimes as we come to a new year, as Christians, we're a lot more like Kelvin than Einstein. There's really nothing big to learn or to do new with the gospel. We just need to have more and more precise methods of measuring. How well did I read my Bible? How, how well did I sort of put off sin? Did I stop watching those bad things? Did I start doing a few good things? And all we do is measure and measure and cut and measure. When God has whole new worlds for us to discover in the gospel, I hope an old place in the gospel, a familiar place in the gospel, awakens New worlds for us this, this New Year's Day. I want to read to you from the, the wise men's story. They are usually for this Sunday, the Sunday after Christmas. Matthew chapter 2, it's printed there for you in the bulletin. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he? Who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ 
was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down. And worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for coming so long ago as Son of God, Savior of the world, light of the world, light of the nations. Jesus, shine your light brightly here today, just as you did for the wise men long ago. Lord, help us as we come into this story to be drawn into this story to to realize that we need to submit to you rather than keep you at distance or try to control you or even destroy you the way Herod did, that we need to move toward you rather than standing still the way the scribes did, that we have nothing better to do in our lives than to come and worship you as the wise men showed And that we, like the people of Bethlehem, can trust you and find you even in the middle of great suffering around us and in our lives and in our world. Come, Jesus, shine your light. Show us beautiful new things in the gospel today and this year ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Hal already told us, right, if you were here at the beginning of the service, that 
having a New Year's resolution can be a good thing to do, and, and that's great. My problem always with New Year's resolutions is, right, I, I'm not sure which ones to make. You know, what are the right ones to make? Should I, should I go off sugar this year? Should I try to lose 20 pounds this year? Should this be the year that I stop watching so much TV and start reading more? Should this be the year that uh, I try to raise money more effectively for our ministry? Should this be the year that I really begin to seek to love my wife more effectively by doing the things that she wants to do rather than demanding that she do all the things that I want to do. Which of those should I grab hold of, you know? What's it going to be? Keeping resolutions is hard, right? But even discovering what's the right one to grab is even harder. My challenge for us all this year is to say, to really resolve one thing, to respond well to Jesus this year. To respond well to Jesus. I love what Hal said. Maybe this is going to be a great year for you. 2016 was an amazing year for our family. We were able to sell my parents' house after four years in Florida. We were able to sell our house in Knoxville amazingly and beautifully and quickly and move here to Athens and buy a home and get settled. My wife, Fran, has just felt so loved and connected here. It's been amazing how God has answered prayers. We moved my mother into a retirement facility up in Lawrenceville, right by my offices with the PCA. It's been amazing. We've seen a grandchild born to us that we didn't even know was planned when the year began uh, just a week ago. It's beautiful what God did in 16 for us. But there are other years that aren't like that, right? What's 17 going to be like? We don't know. But can we respond well to Jesus in the middle of it Regardless of the circumstances, I I love what C.S. Lewis said, the the Christian thinker, perhaps the great, really, Christian apologist of the last century. And he, he said this on the BBC public radio in the 1950s. He said, you know, now look, Jesus is either liar or lunatic or Lord. He's either a liar when he claims to be God in the flesh. He's, he's a liar about that. And yet, you can't just have him as a good teacher. I mean, he's either God come or he's not. But, but he said, you know, he doesn't function like a liar. His statements have this amazing ring of truth to them. The things that he said he would do, he did do. He talked about dying, and he did die. And he talked about rising again after three days, and he did rise again. And he taught God's word with an authority that, that rung and struck chords in the hearts of people that moved thousands of them to come out into the desert to hear him. He doesn't really come off like a liar, Is he a lunatic? Is he crazy? Is he a madman? Madmen don't usually go quietly and and directly in a focused manner to their own deaths with purpose. Madmen are not able to have a movement that they stay with across time. He doesn't strike you as a madman. Well, then, if he is Lord, if he is God in the flesh, how you respond to him means everything. Now, Lewis was using that in an apologetic, an evangelistic kind of way on these radio messages in the 1950s in England. But that's really true for all of us, whether we are a new explorer of Christianity or even a skeptic. But if we, especially if we're longtime followers, how are we continuing to respond to Jesus? How are we responding to him? And I want us to process that a bit from this story of the wise men. 
and see as we're processing this, looking at the characters, you know, the Gospels are written so that we would get drawn in to the story. And, and so often you, you see from the characters around Jesus how we're to respond to him. And I want you to think about this with me in terms of the wise men's story. First, think about Herod. What does Herod teach us? The necessity of submission in our response to Jesus. Who's Herod? He'd be comical, right, if he was not so tragic. Um, He's a guy who says, I am the rightful king of the Jews. He's not even Jewish. (laughs) One parent is Indian man, another parent is Arabian. He's only sort of given this title of petty king um, by the Romans in 40 um, B.C. They give this title to him to sort of help him keep the peace in the region under Roman rule. And, and, you know, so all he's got is what the culture says about him, the power structures over him in terms of his place and kingship, and he's got his own brutal authority. What does Herod do? We call him Herod the Great in history. He's really Herod the Awful. You see in this very narrative, right, he's going to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem, two years older and two years and younger. Tragic and horrible. This is not the first time or only time he does something like this. He killed two of his grown sons, strangled them to death when he felt they were conspiring against him. He had one of his wives killed because he thought she was not being loyal to him and faithful to him. Around his deathbed, get this, he arranges for nobles in the region to be secretly put to death as he is lying de- dying on his deathbed to ensure that there would be weeping and mourning around his death. This guy is horrible. Right? But what's the root of things? He wants to play king and refuses to submit to the true king. Yes, let's find out about Jesus. Yes, let's find out what's what's described about him. But I want to stay at a distance. I want to let others go and explore him. And when I feel that he is threatening me from this distance, I will try to push him away and then try to shut him down. I love what W.H. Auden says. He wrote a play about these things. Uh, It's called for, uh, just want to get the title right, for the time being. And he has Herod talking to himself in sort of a soliloquy in the middle of this play. And here's Herod talking. Today has been one of those perfect winter days, cold, brilliant, and utterly still, when the bark of a shepherd's dog carries for miles, and the great wild mountains come up quite close to the city walls, and the mind feels intensely awake. And this evening, as I stand at this high window high up in the citadel, there is nothing in the whole magnificent panorama of plain and mountains to indicate that the empire is threatened by a danger more dreadful than any invasion of Tartar on racing camels or conspiracy of the Praetorian Guard. But, oh dear, why couldn't this wretched infant be born somewhere else? See, if we don't submit to Jesus... What ends up happening for us is we push him away and then as we are threatened by him, we tend to snuff him out or even destroy him if we could. 
I think it's fascinating how we'll do this, how we'll keep our distance and, and, and even do this through religious means. I, I remember so vividly in the seventh grade, first year of junior high school, Southwest Junior High School in Lakeland, Florida. I had this mechanism to try to keep Jesus at bay, to keep Jesus under control. And what I did was we had P.E. in the period right after lunch. And so we got an extra long P.E. I got a good schedule. It was great. But afterwards, everybody would run from the bell, and you had to go a long way to get to the next class. And it was the shortest break of the day. And everybody would just leave the athletic gear out on the fields. So I, I literally would do this every day. I would run around and pick up all the balls and the bats and the bases and the gloves and carry them back into the PE office and then run to my class and get there late because I felt if I did this one good deed for everybody, then God would have to do what I wanted him to do in the rest of my day. That's pitiful, right? A seventh grade little boy's way of doing things. How do we do this still? I'll read my Bible. I'll pray. I'll come to church. Maybe you're even here on New Year's Day to to get the good luck of a new year from God. We must simply submit to Jesus. He is king, and we are not. Where in 2017 does Jesus simply want you to let go, to stop the manipulation? To stop the controlling, to stop the demanding, to stop the scratching and the clawing, the clinging and the clutching, and simply submit to him. His word, his way, his will. Where you lead, I will follow. To respond well to Jesus is to submit to him. And Herod shows us how not to do that, right? The second group here are the scribes and the chief priests, and and they show us of our need to move toward Jesus. To respond to Jesus is not just to submit to him, but move toward him. So Herod calls the scribes and calls the chief priest and says, tell me about this thing. What are these guys saying? What of this? Where would the king be born? Of course, the wise men have come to Jerusalem, the capital of the region, to the palace of the king. But they say, no, no, no. Well, we know where Messiah is to be born. He's to be born in Bethlehem, in the town of David, nine miles away, a little town that's called the House of Bread that often has famines so bad people have to move away from there. That little shabby town of Bethlehem is where he's to be born. The scribes and the priests are so interesting, right? Because they know the truth. They point the way For the wise men, as Augustine said long ago, these wise men are like stone pillars pointing the way where one can go to Christ, but they move not themselves. They are as dead as stone. Michael Green, a a, a contemporary Christian commentator on this passage, said, the scribes and the priest don't lift even a sandal to move toward Jesus. These wise men, what do they have? Just a star in the sky. Perhaps vague prophecies that have drifted toward them in the different times of, of Jews being deported to various regions of the east. How do they even know where they're going? What are they doing? Who are they seeking? And they cross deserts. Their journey is likely in the year and a half to two year range. 
to get to Bethlehem. And these scribes will not lift a sandal. Do you know how far it is from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? It's nine miles. They will not walk nine miles to move toward Jesus. I think so many of us, I think our whole part of the church, the Presbyterian church in America, in a lot of ways, we're like the scribes and the priest. People ask us questions. Oh, yes, yes, this is what the Bible says. Oh, yes, this is who Jesus is. Oh, yes, this is what these prophecies mean. But we will not lift a sandal to move towards him. Where does Jesus just simply want you to start moving toward him this year? Make 2017 a year not in which you know more stuff about Jesus. That you actually move toward Jesus. That you start living what you know. We've been taught a world of things in our part of the church. But what are we actually living about loving God more with heart and soul and mind and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. There's a story told by Brendan Manning in one of his books um, about a little boy in Anderson, South Carolina on Christmas Day. And the little boy just lived alone with his mother and she, um, she and he were tight. And uh, Christmas, like it did this year, fell on a Sunday morning. And she had told him the night before, now, now I have to work late at the store on Christmas Eve, but I'll be in, and uh, we'll go to church on Christmas morning, and then we'll open our presents. And so she came home, and one of the things that had been on her mind that she'd even talked about is she needed to shine her shoes and polish her shoes before they went to church on Christmas morning. And she got up early on Christmas Day and pulled her shoes out of the closet, the one nice pair she had, and discovered that her son had polished them for her had shined them for her, and she was just moved to tears. And so she wrote him a little note and put two quarters in it and put it under the tree for him that he could see after, after um, they went to church. So they went to church together. They came back. They, they opened their gifts together. And the little boy saw that note from his mother uh, and saw the two quarters inside, and he hugged her. And, and so at, at the end of the day, She was back sort of sorting things back in her closet and she picked up those shoes again and she realized she heard a little rattle in them. (laughs) And inside them were the two quarters and a note back from her son that said, Mom, I want you to have these back. I'd done it for love. (laughs) Where, Where does Jesus just want you to move out on what you know simply motivated by love? His amazing love for you. To submit to Jesus, uh, to respond to Jesus is to submit to him. It is to move toward him. Thirdly, it is to worship him. What did the wise men show us? They, they do cross deserts and streams and, and cities and, and endure perhaps an 18-month to a 24-month journey. And here they come and I love what they do, right? When they find the baby, there's nothing, there's nothing this baby can do for them. But they just lay down. The text says they fall on their knees. They pour out their treasures before them, before him. 
The text says they were exceedingly glad with great joy, as a commentator said. They were deliriously happy in worship at Jesus. See, so often, what are we doing with Jesus? Jesus, do this for me. Please fix this. Please heal this. Please step into this. Please give me this. Please take away that. And what Jesus, most of all, is here for us in the middle of our world is simply for us to stop and worship him. Hal and I were talking up here before the service these Sundays of when it happens of Christmas Day, Sunday, and New Year's Day, Sunday. It's hard on the preacher. It's hard on you, maybe. It's really hard on the preacher. Um, Because the days you think you kind of get to rest and chuck it all away, you know you're actually doing your regular thing, right? Um, But they're beautiful. They're so beautiful. Because what this day puts in front of you is that this year ahead for you, regardless of what the circumstances are, can be just simply a year where you are bowing and worshiping Jesus. You know, Athens, the move for me has been great for my wife. It's been hard for me so far. I'm gone all the time. Most Sundays I'm gone. Uh, I travel most of the week. I travel a lot of weeks, the whole week straight, uh, seeing churches and missions all across the U.S. and Canada. Um, But when I am home, um, Fran is great and greets me, but also my dog, Lily, is great. (laughs) She's a Vishla. She's five years old. She's a hound dog, hunting dog, and she just gets ecstatic when I come in the door, and she has this way of just, just almost being overcome and bowing her head over like this, and just, just leaning over and bowing her head. And, and that is, you know, I'm just this pathetic owner that's never even around, you know. We get this privilege through word and sacrament and the people of Christ around us to see Jesus here among us and to simply worship him. Come to him. Come to him as the church gathers. Come to him in the word on your own. Come to him in community group settings. Come to him. As we take these sacraments in a moment, just simply ask the Holy Spirit, as he promises to do, to be mysteriously but truly present in this ordinary bread and wine and overwhelm you with the joy that Jesus is here. The wise men teach us that worship is everything, that Whatever resolution we make is only as good as it is an expression of worship to Jesus. May this be a year filled with worship for him. Ask him to come and to show you himself in ways that do overwhelm you, that call forth your best from you, that cause you to be willing to stand against the structures and powers of the world, the tyrants like Herod, as these wise men go back another way and don't bow to the false king because they've worshiped at the feet of the true king. Responding to Jesus is submitting to him. Responding to Jesus is moving toward him. Responding to Jesus is bowing and worshiping him. And lastly, responding to Jesus is enduring with him in the middle of suffering. We read the part of the passage here that you don't typically read around Christmas. We read the part of the passage about Herod's response, about how he tries to snuff out Jesus, and so he kills 
all the baby boys in Bethlehem, two years old and younger, because Jesus has come. And if you really think about it, I like what Philip Yancey says. He says, you know, we like our fancy Christmas cards. We like to see the angels and we like to hear of the happiness and the joy. But he said, when I read the biblical narratives, what I discover is there is great joy and hope and calls to fear not. But there is also great suffering around the story of Christmas. Everybody who gets pulled into this story suffers. Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, is struck mute. Elizabeth has to keep herself pinned in for fear that this child might not really come to term and be born. Mary is misunderstood by an entire community along with Joseph about this pregnancy and what it is, and then oppressed by a Roman government having to travel miles and miles, uh, and then not even given a space in which to give birth. And here now are these children in Bethlehem and their mothers, like Rachel of old who died in this region, weeping wailing. Rachel died in childbirth, at least, giving birth to Benjamin. Here these mothers are weeping and wailing because their children are dying, and they're still there. Jesus had to come in the middle of our brokenness. He had to come in the middle of the world's worst suffering in order for the gospel to have true meaning to us because we live in the middle of radical suffering. To respond to Jesus is to say, I will trust you. I will find hope in you in the middle of suffering. When I don't understand it, when I want to say you're the cause of this even, Jesus, rather than the remedy, I will trust you. I will hope in you. I will look at you to stop my weeping and wailing that I cannot stop and turn my tears of sadness into tears of gladness. I will, I will trust you to take my depression, my discouragement, my aloneness and turn it into connection and hope in you. And I will wait upon the Lord. Would you make 217 a year in which we respond to Jesus? Submit to him afresh. Move toward him in ways that you know he wants you to just get started. Bow before him in worship. Make worship the center of your life in your your own rhythm, in your family, in, in your week here. And rest in him in the middle of suffering and pain, and challenge. Because this is what the world needs from us. If we are to be effective in mission, it has to be a gospel that has traction and hope and light in the middle of the darkness of suffering. Otherwise, it is no good at all. But it is a gospel that gives that. And there are worlds for us to discover in this gospel in 2017 and beyond. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of the wise men, and we, we plead with you to press it down into our hearts and minds as this year begins. Lord, may we be caught up in the story too, and may we resolve to respond to Jesus afresh. 
Some of us may be a seeker, a skeptic, uh, one who knows we've fallen away from the faith. Lord, would you call us back and move us like the wise men just to lay everything down we have and worship there and know that you as the babe love us and accept us and welcome us. Lord, others of us may have journeyed with you a long way and we're tired. We, we feel weary, we feel worn, we're confused, we're burdened for ourselves and those around us. Jesus, would you press this gospel afresh into us and cause us to respond anew, cause us to submit, to stop clinging and grabbing and clutching and lay it all down before you, to, to cause us to move toward you, to begin to apply what we know to be true in your word, to just start doing a little bit of the gospel afresh. Lord, please help us to make this a year of worship and a year of hope in the middle of our sufferings and the sufferings of those around us. Jesus, we lift all this before you. We pray it in your name. We pray that now we could experience the exceedingly great joy that the wise men did, even as we come to this table. We ask it all in your name. Amen.